All right, we're going to forego children's sermon today. I know, I'm so sorry. But Pastor David's going to be here next week, and he's going to give you the best children's sermon you've ever heard. And I'm setting him up for success, okay? If you have your Bibles, open them up to Matthew chapter 11. Um, I was thinking, this is, this is kind of our final week of this year's kind of theme series. That feels weird, um, but next week I won't be here. I'll be preaching a revival in Farmington, New Mexico, uh, and then I'm going to take two weeks um, after I get back to kind of do some thematic stuff to set the tone for where I want us to go next year. Uh, then it's like Christmas time. Isn't that crazy? You know, so uh, if you've not been with us this year, all year we've been focusing on this idea of intentionally living like Jesus. And the concept being nobody wakes up in the morning and like accidentally acts like Jesus. It's something that you actually have to be intentional about. You have to put it into practice. And so we've just really kind of slowly been walking through the gospel of Matthew. Um, we actually will pick up next week in chapter 12 again, but it's going to be with a different kind of slant to it. Um, so hold on to this. Maybe we'll pick it back up in a couple years. But I at least want to close out this, this chapter 11 of Matthew. So let me just kick in Matthew chapter 11, verse 16 through the rest of the chapter. So this is Jesus talking. To, to what should I compare this generation it's like children sitting in the marketplace who call out to other children, we played the flute for you, but you didn't dance. We sing a lament, but you didn't mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he has a demon. And then the Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. Then he proceeded to denounce the towns where most of his miracles were done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles that were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented in sackcloth and ashes long ago. But I tell you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? No, you will go down to Hades. For if the miracles that were done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. And at that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, because this was your good pleasure, all things have been entrusted to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son desires to reveal him. So come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke, learn from me, because I am lowly and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Last week when we opened up in Matthew 11, we looked at John the Baptist. And John the Baptist doubts in, in doubting the Messiah, uh, especially when what he expects the Messiah to look like doesn't exactly align with the Jesus that he sees in reality. And Jesus responds to John uh, by saying, John, tr trust in me, trust in who I am, trust in what I'm doing, even if it's at the expense of yourself and your expectations. 
Trust that God's love and his commitment to this broken world is so good that he will not allow sin and suffering and death to get the final say. So even when you're experiencing that suffering, because John is in prison underneath King Herod, even in the midst of that prison cell, trust me. But here's the thing about trusting Jesus. Trusting Jesus often challenges our most basic notions and our natural tendencies within ourselves, which is exactly where Jesus is going to go next. It's a seemingly weird thing about humanity, but we all have this natural tendency within us, and as we navigate out and we enact that natural tendency, more often than not, it actually creates problems than it does creating the good things in our life. In the literary word, uh, world, we've uh, used a word to describe this. We use the word irony, right? It's the idea that you expect something's going to go this way because on the surface everything is pointing that direction and it feels good for that direction, but then at the end it all flips upside down and it's not what you would expect, right? This is irony. So this is, you finally get that new job, and it's exciting, and you get dressed up, and you've been praying for a new job for years, and you get into the office, and you're just swelled with anticipation and joy, and you find out your coworker's a jerk, and how on earth are you going to spend every day of your life sitting next to this person? That's irony. I expected things to go this way, and they went this way. So in high school, um, many of you know, high school, I did cross country and track all four years. I was a big part of who I was. I was never great at it, but I loved it. Um, and then by the time I got to college, uh, I didn't do cross country and track. I did cafeteria. That's, that's what I did in college, not cross country and track. I did cafeteria. And here was the challenge for me, because like in college, there's no one there to challenge the natural tendencies, and it's kind of that first time in life that the doors open up, and it's like, Philip, do whatever you want. There is no consequences. And I'm like, I'm going to do whatever I want. There is no consequences. I don't know if it turned out for you like it's turned out for me, um, but I, I just did whatever felt best to me, like what that natural tendency on the surface level was good. So I would sleep till like 10 o'clock in the morning, and then I'd get up, and I'd go to class, and I'd come to the cafeteria, and I'd eat lunch, and lunch always consisted of a salad, and by salad, I mean I would put croutons in a bowl and put honey mustard on top of the croutons and eat honey mustard crouton cereal, and it was delicious. Still love honey mustard crouton cereal, although I don't indulge in it like that anymore. And I would eat breadsticks dipped in ranch, and then afterwards I would get a to-go cup and fill it up with soft-served ice cream, and I'd go to my next class. Then I'd come back, and I'd take a nap in my, in my room, and then I would go to dinner, and that would be round two of honey mustard cereal and ice cream for dinner. And then I would just, like, do homework and go to bed. And by the end of the semester, right, like, what's the expectation? I felt so good every day. I got to eat exactly what I wanted, and I slept as much as I wanted. I felt great. No, right? You know the end of that story. I felt horrible. I was tired all the time. I was unmotivated. I went from straight A's in high school to barely holding a, Greek, a C in Greek. And here's the irony, Right? It wasn't until I started eating better and exercising the things that you would think would expend your energy, that energy actually came back and motivation went up and grades went up. Because as it turns out, doing the thing I wanted, sleeping and eating honey mustard cereal, whenever I wanted, every day all the time, turned out to actually lead to difficulty, not satisfaction. Indulging in the things that felt natural to me turned out to hurt me, not to help 
me, which this is the exact point Jesus is making in this text. Except for, for Jesus, in his way, there's so much more on the line than just motivation and energy and a letter grade. For Jesus, this disconnect between humanity's natural tendencies and reality is actually a matter of life and death. It is the ultimate irony that the things that seem correct in our hearts are actually the things that lead us step by step into death. And this is precisely what Jesus has come to rescue from. So I want to look through this text in three movements. I want to look through it in the movement of irony of expectation, through the movement of irony in identity, and irony of rest. So we're just going to break this text down in those three movements, and then we'll see if we can tie it all together in the end. So movement one, irony of expectation. Jesus says, what should I compare this generation in verse 16? And he goes on to talk about children who play a happy song, but people don't dance. And they play a sad song, but people don't mourn. And they get all flustered and frustrated when people don't respond the way they expect people to respond. And he says, this is how John came, and you didn't accept him. And this is how I came, and you didn't accept me. John came with serious reverence, and you said, oh, he's got a demon. He's too weird. We can't listen to that guy. Then I came eating and drinking and celebrating. You said, this guy's a drunkard. We can't listen to him. He eats with all the wrong people, the tax collectors. And Jesus is saying, do you not understand the irony of your expectations? Now, we talked about this at length last week. And if you're interested in kind of exploring this concept of faith and expectations and how do we get rid of our expectations for accepting who Jesus really is, you can go listen to that podcast. Uh, It's on our website. But for now, just highlight a couple things. What Jesus is pointing out is this irony here that you rejected both extremes. You rejected John and you've rejected me. When in fact, it's both John and I that are truth. And then he gives this this kind of point in his last line where he just says, yet wisdom is vindicated by her deeds or wisdom is proven right by her children would be another way of interpreting and translating this. Uh, he's very clearly playing on the Psalms and the Psalm idea uh, of, or sorry, Proverbs. That's the wrong P book. Proverbs idea, the proverbial idea of wisdom embodied and that wisdom gets proven right. It actually has bearing on your life. So wisdom is proved right by your deeds. But, but what Jesus is pointing to, all of this, is it doesn't matter what you expect or what you anticipate or what you desire. Truth actually has no concern with that. Truth does not need your approval to be true. That's Jesus' point right here. So truth doesn't need your approval. It doesn't need to fit your expectations. In fact, your feelings, your expectations, or your approval does not change whether or not it is true. It can vindicate itself whether you embrace it or reject it. Right? So, so you could travel back to 2010, Philip going to college for the first time, and watch him eat his tangy, crunchy, delicious honey mustard crouton cereal, and say, dude, that is really unhealthy. That is nothing but carbs and sugar, and it's going to make you crash, and it's going to ruin your day. And I know this because I know exactly how I would respond, because that's what my roommate told me every single day. Philip, you're going to have high cholesterol if you keep eating this way. And you know what freshman Philip said? I don't care. I'm going to eat it anyways. I reject that truth because for me, this cereal is delicious. Not cereal, but you get what I mean, Right? For, for me, this, is, this feels right. Does truth care about that feeling, though? No, because by the time 3.30 pulled around every day and I was carb-loaded and tired, 
I found myself having to sleep. Truth does not care how I feel about what foods I eat. Truth is vindicated. Wisdom is vindicated, proven true by her deeds. Um, we wouldn't say it that way today. We might say something like, uh, the proof is in the pudding. I don't, I don't know what that means. But there you go. Take it that way. The proof is in the pudding. Jesus claims that John's way, and thereby his way, is truth. And simply denying that truth or rejecting that truth does not make it any less true. So the irony is you can have an expectation, but if your expectation is off, it doesn't matter, and it actually leads you astray so that you don't follow John because he's too serious or you don't follow Jesus because he's too celebratory, and Jesus is saying you've totally missed it. The irony is, is that I am the truth. You see, your rejection of the truth doesn't make it any less true, but it does have ramifications for your life. Because Jesus believes that your response to him far outweighs your nationality or your place of birth or your familiar or economical status. And thus we get into the irony of identity. So he proceeds to denounce towns, verse 20, where most of his miracles were done. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. And he jumps down into Capernaum. Will you be exalted to heaven? Verse 23, no, you will go down to Hades. Now, to be fair, there's a lot to be said here. And this section does come across a little bit prickly to us. At least to me, it comes across a little bit prickly. I mean, how, how do we go from a Jesus that's so compassionate that anybody, tax collector, sinner, leper, when they walk up to him, he heals them and he redeems them and he casts out demons, just this Jesus filled with compassion. How does he transition so quickly from compassion to what it seems like to be condemnation and judgment? Is Jesus that Disney villain that seems nice on the front end and when you reject him, he actually turns really mean and nasty? And that would seem to me to be a very gross mischaracterizing of Jesus in the Bible. So how do we make sense of this? And, and what about pronouncing woes on not just people but towns? I don't know about you, but like when's the last time you pronounced woes over an entire town? That's usually me in college football for whatever college football team my team's playing. Like, woe to you, Tuscaloosa, Alabama. That's, no, right? We don't pronounce woes over people. That's not something that's normal in our everyday vocabulary. What's going on here? So just back up a little bit. As a general rule of thumb, anytime you're dealing with a passage that seems to be particularly difficult or hard to swallow, just step back. Be, be patient. And remember, before we yank Jesus out of the first century and plan him in the 21st century and then put him onto trial, demanding he defend himself, we have to, to the best of our abilities, understand Jesus and understand the Bible within its context. Now, that doesn't make every passage easy to swallow. And there are still some things we have to grapple with and wrestle with and submit to. But understand, Jesus does want to communicate to you today in 2023 Portalis. But that communication never comes at the expense of the people that he loved just as much as he loves you and me back then. So a couple of contextual points here that I want to hit first before we get into this irony of identity kind of theme. And the first one is in verse 23 that we read. Uh, woe to you. He doesn't say woe in this, but it's an extension of Capernaum. For you, will you be exalted to heaven? No, you will go down to Hades. And I would just open up this question to just say, is Jesus sending people to hell here? Debatable to some extent, but I would argue pretty heavily that's not what's happening in this passage. 
Because I think you have to go to the context of what's going on. So what do your Bibles say there in verse 23? Will you go up to heaven? No, I tell you, you will go down to, how many has Hades? Anybody, Hades, that's what mine says. Anybody have a good King James Version? That one will say hell if you have a King James Version. Uh, Most modern translations are going to translate this Hades. uh, But there's different translations like the New Living Translation that will say uh, the place of the dead. So the interesting thing at this point is the, the, it's not, Hades is not actually a translation of the word. It's what we call a transliteration of the Greek word. So with that being said, do you know what the Greek word is here? It's Hades. Yeah, it's Hades. So Hades is a Greek context word to reference the place of the dead. Contextually, this is Jesus commenting on the direction of Capernaum and the way that they're heading, and it's like that of these other two Jewish cities. Capernaum, the direction you're going does not lead where you think it leads. And there's another thing that's at play here in the context. Dale Bruner, a New Testament scholar, suggests that Capernaum had, had probably almost made its town motto, this phrase, lifted to heaven. It's a phrase that's pulled directly out of Isaiah chapter 14, verse 13. It's this kind of sense of civic pride. You know, we are the town where Jesus started his ministry. We're the important people. We are the ones lifted to heaven. Uh, You know, it's putting a motto on a nation and thinking that that motto makes the nation uh, in God we trust. I don't know, something like that, right? That the motto actually proves it to be true. And Jesus calls this out by then also pulling from Isaiah, Because this tradition of pronouncing woes over cities, that's not something people usually do. But it was a normal occurrence for the Hebrew prophets. So, Isaiah chapter 5, verse 11. I have the verses up here if you want to read them. Woe to those who rise early in the morning in pursuit of beer. I think Isaiah was writing to a college town. I'm not sure here. Woe to those who rise early in the morning in pursuit of beer, who linger in the evening inflamed by wine. At their feasts they have lyre and harp and tambourine and flute and wine, but they do not perceive the Lord's actions. They do not see the work of his hands. Therefore, and it's the Hebrew word sheol, but it's the grave. It would be the transliteration from Hebrew to Greek as Hades. Therefore, the grave, the place of the dead, enlarges its throats and opens wide its enormous jaws, and down go Zion's dignitaries, her masses, her crowds, and those who celebrate in her. Jesus is saying, Capernaum, you think that you're this special town that's going to be lifted to heaven, but you're just another imprint on this pattern, thinking you're great and wonderful and headed in the right direction, while all the while the road that you're on does not lead to heaven. It leads to death, to the grave to destruction, and thus we find the irony of identity, right? These, these towns, they're Jewish settlements that Jesus went and did ministry in. They are supposed to be the embodied covenant example of God's love and hope and rescue to the world, and instead they are enacting and living in the very same ways that the other people do that have over and over again destroyed people and families and towns, all while assuming that their identity is enough to earn them merit and favor. And Jesus, having called them out of this and invited them to repent over and over again, looks at their response and says, you've never repented. You've been fascinated, sure. You've been entertained for great. 
but you've never actually committed yourself to following me. And remember, these towns, these are not just arbitrary places with nameless individuals. These are places where Jesus set up camp. He knows the names, the disciples that are listening to him. These are family members for him. This is the baker down the street where they go and they buy their bread. And Jesus is saying, I'm telling you, if they don't change course, I know where this leads. Death, destruction, the grave. A fate far worse than the fire and brimstone destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah because it's actually not your perceived morality or your nationality or your economic status that can rescue you out of death. It is only your trust in Jesus. And it's in this heavy moment that Jesus seems to extend this final invitation of repentance. In the midst of the woe, he leans heavier into this irony. Look at verse 25. He turns around and he prays, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven, because you have hidden these things from the wise and the intelligent and revealed them to infants. It is not nation or status. It is not wisdom or intelligence. The irony of identity is it's only of those or for those who come to Jesus as needy infants that get rescued. Your PhD degree, your economic status bracket, your nationality, your house size, your car, none of it rescues you from the looming death to come. It is only Jesus. And it's only those who come as needy infants. Um, talk about this for a whole hour because I'm in this kind of first-hand testimony stage of life right now, but I can tell you, infants are pretty needy. And it doesn't matter like what time of night it is or day it is. If they need you, they are going to let you know that they need you. And they can't cover or care for themselves. They can't feed themselves. They can't bathe themselves. They can't... My son's four months old. He's got a lot of really cool things that I love about him. Could not survive on his own. Very bad at surviving on his own right now. Can't even set up. Just now kind of starting to learn to roll over. Jesus says, this is how we have to come to God, recognizing that we have no means of providing for ourselves, but we come to him and say, Jesus, you are the one that provides for us. And typically, everything within our humanity rejects this. Until you look across the biblical narrative and find out this is how God has always worked. Because it's God that calls the 80-year-old barren couple to have a son that he's going to use to start his people. And it's the disliked brothers sold into slavery that actually rescues Israel as Egyptian royalty out of famine. And then it's the Hebrew raised in Egyptian royalty turned out to be a murderer who then comes back to rescue Israel from slavery. It's the runt of the litter left in the field tending to sheep that gets anointed as king. And this theme keeps going on over and over, resulting in this moment where the God of Israel comes wrapped in flesh to earth, not as a militant leader in a militant family ready to lay siege and conquer politically, not as some wealthy oligarch to sit on the throne and to be born into a palace, not an intellectual family member poised to graduate with his PhD from the University of Jerusalem six years early, but as Jesus of Nazareth, a carpenter born in a stable in Bethlehem, raised in a podunk little city who spent his life perfectly living as God intended, only to trade his perfection on the cross for you. That's the story God's telling you. 
And it's this story that Jesus leads to over and over that his kingdom is actually upside down so that the last will be first and the first will be made last. That it's the humble that get exalted and the proud that get brought down. Or as he says back in chapter 10 at the end in verse 38 and 39. And whoever doesn't take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Because anyone who finds his life will lose it. And anyone who loses his life because of me will find it. This is the irony of identity. Actually, life starts in denying yourself, repenting of your ways, living into the ways of Jesus. And that flies in the face of everything our culture stands for. And Jesus says, yes. That's flies in the face of everything humanity has stood for for all of time. But it's only in this that you can actually find rest. And we get into the final part, the irony of rest. The end of chapter 11, he says, verse 28, Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take up my yoke and learn from me, because I am lowly and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Often we miss the irony of this passage because it feels so familiar. So again, Dale Bruner, I read a lot of Dale Bruner this week in preparing for this sermon. I love his quote about this. I'll put it on the screen for you. A yoke is a work instrument. Thus, when Jesus offers a yoke, he offers what we might think workers need least. They need a mattress or a vacation, not a yoke. But Jesus realizes that the most restful gift He can give the tired is a new way to carry that life, a fresh way to bear responsibilities. Realism sees that life is a life of succession of burdens. We can't get away from them. Thus, instead of offering escape, Jesus offers equipment. Did you pick up on that? The irony is that Jesus does not offer to bring you rest, saying, well, why don't you just go ahead and check out? You just, just don't, don't even bother anymore. I'll take care of it for here. Just check out. No, that's not to say Jesus never says you can't take a nap or rest. Jesus himself takes naps and rest. That's a great idea. But Jesus sees the tone of rest not to come in mattresses or vacations, but in yokes. Now, I know most of you know what a yoke is, but I at least got to put a picture up because we are very far removed from agrarian culture but, but this is a yoke, and I like this picture because it shows, like, the really big cow and the really small cow, and it's still, like, comically not even this extent when it's Jesus and us in the same yoke because Jesus is huge and carries the weight for us, and we are tiny. It's like yoking me to, like, when Griffin turns two here in a couple years. Like, we're going to both help. It's me helping, not him. That's the picture that Jesus gives, but it's a yoke. It's something to work with. It's the way of Jesus. To walk side by side with him. Come walk and step with me. I'll carry the load. Match my pace. The way of Jesus isn't about absence of your burdens. It's about repurposing those burdens and redistributing the weight to your king who invites you to rest. I love how John Mark Comer puts it in his book, Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. By the way, if you want to study this more, that book's all about this passage. But he says this, an easy life isn't an option. An easy yoke is. So why don't we ever feel that rest? I don't know about you, but it sure feels like the world is far more hectic and busy. And there's always more and more things to do. And then you have a son and somehow it gets even more busy. And you're like, how did we even, why don't we feel this rest? 
And I think the best I could say is because we don't trade in our expectations and our identities for the sake of Jesus. Rather, we ask Jesus to come in to fit our expectations and put his seal of approval on the identities that we select for ourselves. And then we live life in a way that feels most natural to us. Reducing Jesus and his lifestyle as some kind of extra sprinkles that we can put on the top to make us feel a little bit more fancy or as the narcotic that comes in and just takes away all the other problems so we don't have to deal with them. And then wonder why we're always so stressed out and busy and anxious and worried. All the while Jesus is inviting over and over, anyone who is weary, come to me and you will find rest. Not on a mattress, not on a vacation, but by being yoked to me, to learn from me, because I am lowly and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy, my burden is light. See, this is the invitation of Jesus, to draw it to this point. If we could say, what does it mean to live like Jesus? Well, it means that we trust Jesus over what comes naturally. Intentionally living like Jesus means trusting Jesus over whatever it is in your life that comes naturally. Trust Jesus over your expectations. Let go of your idea of right. The temptation is to believe that our expectations, our culture, our ways are always right and Jesus or whatever is always wrong. That's the problem we've had since Genesis 1. We have to get away from that and say, no, Jesus, you are the truth. Your way is the truth. And we match your cadence of life. That means we actually have to let him tell us the truth. And we sure don't like it when we're sitting down eating our honey mustard crouton cereal and our roommate looks across from us and says, it's probably going to result in cholesterol and you shouldn't eat that. We don't like that feeling, right? I don't like it when the Holy Spirit comes to me and says, hey, that show you're watching on Netflix... It's not doing you any favors. Hey, that thing you're doing with your boyfriend or your girlfriend, I promise it's hurting you more than it's helping you. Hey, that way you're spending your money, it's not going to lead to kingdom growth. But this is the invitation. And Jesus says it's actually when we take those things and we let the Holy Spirit speak into us and we say, no, 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 we're going to match step for step with Jesus to walk in his ways, to trust in his truths, that we find rest. Are you looking for rest? Match Jesus. Trust him over your expectation. Trust him over your identity. I don't care who you are, what family you come from, how long you've lived in Portales, what things that your dad built or your great-granddad built. It doesn't matter because your identity can only be formed. The only way to life is by matching step by step with Jesus and walking with him. It is there and only there that we find rest. So do you need rest? Do you need to sleep? Do you need to just trust Jesus? Maybe right now there's something that you just need to hand over and say, God, I can't carry this, but I will walk side by side with you carrying it. Maybe you've never known Jesus, and you've never known what it's like to have a Savior come in and say, let me take this burden from you. Let me forgive you of these sins, set you free, and give you new life. I would love to talk with you more about that today. But what for you? Do you need to let go of that comes naturally as you embrace the way and the truth of Jesus? Father God, thank you for this time and this life you've given us. God, help us to be a people that truly embrace you, not, not what comes naturally, God, 
those things that our flesh longs for, as good as they may make us feel in the moment, God, we, we know your word, that the end result is not life, it's death. Will you be lifted to heaven? No. Be taken to the grave. God, we don't want to live that life. We want to live a life of eternal significance. So, God, give us your yoke, the yoke of Christ, knowing that he's the one that bears the weight as we walk side by side. It's in Jesus' name we pray.